0: everyone. Welcome back to More Than Amuse. I'm Sadie. And I'm Stani. And I'm really excited about this one. I've actually had the research for this episode for a while. Ooh. So it was kind of fun to like, I don't know, learn more about her over a period of time yeah. rather than trying to cram it all in very quickly. Yeah, <laughs> But yeah, we get to do another ignored forgotten woman artist this week, which is always fun. I am I mean always I mean obviously. <laughs> yeah. Also this is very random did you dye your hair darker? I did. Okay I was just yes. looking at it I was like wait a minute her hair is dark. <laughs> yeah my hair appointment was on Saturday so oh, it's I like still it. fresh and and dark right now and then it will lighten up because my hair always does. Well, I like it. It looks good. Thanks. Yeah, I like it too. Same. I think like our natural hair color is the same color, isn't it? Yes. And we both yeah. are always not our natural hair yeah. color. Yeah. So. Dying in one or the other. Yeah, either a lot darker or a lot blonder. <laughs> a lot lighter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, one day I should just like embrace it. But mm. I know I've debated it, but I was I had my natural hair color for so long. Oh, it's yeah. Kind of fun to have it different. That's how I feel. I just had to acknowledge cool. that real quick before we no, got going. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's just dive in. I don't recognize the name. I have no idea what this artist mm-hmm. even does. So I am very <laughs> excited to learn about what we're learning about today. Yeah. I mean, she's a really cool, but there's a lot that goes into her. So I'm going to kind of leave the state of the arts into it as she gets introduced to things because she was kind of a part of a lot of stuff, but like it didn't all take place at the same time. Okay. Also, she lived to be 105. So we're going to try to cover 105 years. 105? Yes, in about an hour. (laughs) Wow, that is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, she worked until she was like 104, so very long career. (laughs) Oh, dang. Okay, yeah, amazing. I'm excited to hear what someone can accomplish in 104 years. A lot. So yeah, today we're talking about Beatrice Wood, which she is actually... A ceramicist. A few times I got mistaken and kept typing in Beatrice Ward because she's a graphic designer from history. So not a graphic designer. This is Beatrice Wood, not Beatrice Ward. However, if you want to look at a historical graphic designer, Beatrice Ward is a good place to start. Cool. (laughs) So she is a ceramicist as well as dabbling in a couple of other things. She also did painting, acting, drawing, and writing throughout her life. So very long life, very diverse career. Yeah. And We'll get into it later, but she also ended up being the inspiration for the character of Rose in the 1997 film Titanic. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty significant legacy. I know. So she's very fascinating. Beatrice Wood was born in San Francisco, California. She was born on March 3rd, 1893. And something I learned recently, I really wanted to read a book for the artist I'm doing in October. Mm -hmm. So I've been listening to this book about her, but she was also in San Francisco around this time. And there was the great San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure like you probably haven't heard much about this, but it was like as devastating for San Francisco as like the Chicago fire was for Chicago because- Everyone who was living there, they hadn't really experienced an earthquake like that. Like most people came from England or the eastern United States, where Mm -hmm. earthquakes aren't really a thing. You don't have to worry about earthquakes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And San Francisco's on a fault line. So it wasn't just like a casual earthquake. Like it was pretty significant, terrifying earthquake. And what's interesting is that San Francisco actually used to be like the major art center of the west coast. Oh. And then after like the it was on April 18th in 1906, the quake was only like less than a minute, but it ignited fires around the city that burned for 3 days and destroyed nearly 500 city blocks. Like this wow. was an intense earthquake. Yeah. Yes. So more than 3,000 people died and over 80% of the city was destroyed. And it's still to this day considered one of the worst and deadliest earthquakes in the history of the United States. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's horrible. And I mean, they also they didn't have any like earthquake prevention stuff. Like buildings weren't built for that yet. So obviously, there's a lot that went into making it like the deadliest earthquake for Mm -hmm. the West Coast. But what ended up happening is that a lot of people left. And so San Francisco went from this like huge art center Mm -hmm. to like, Still, like, a beautiful city. Obviously, the rent is still ridiculously high. And I was going like, to say, like, there's there. still a lot of people living in San Francisco. Yes. <laughs> yes. But now, like, the major art center of California and the West Coast is Los Angeles. Yeah. And it wasn't that way before. So kind of interesting how history could have been extremely different. If it wasn't if for this that. this earthquake wouldn't have happened. Wow. Yeah. But Beatrice Woods' family did not move to Los Angeles. They ended up moving all the way back to the East Coast to New York City. Mm. While they were there, they were pretty. Like I said, they were wealthy socialites. They had money, Mm -hmm. and so her mother's main concern was preparing her daughter for her coming out into New York society. Oh yes, (laughs) (laughs) which is so weird that that used to be such like a regular thing. Uh (laughs) Like everyone did it, and apparently, like included much more than just like dancing classes and stuff. Like it was a year in a convent in Paris enrollment in a fashionable finishing school and summer trips to Europe where she was exposed to art galleries museums and the theater I mean I guess it's, so she was sign like, me well up coaching. that sounds great I know <laughs> I'm like what the heck what would be the purpose of that because I guess like if you're a socialite your main goal is to marry rich and then be You gotta like make sure you're a socialite. yeah up to so you have to be like cultured and smart and Everything. I mean, that sounds like a great childhood, to be honest. So sign me up. And what's funny about it is that exposing her daughter to all these arts ended up ruining her plans for her daughter to have a coming out party. Because in 1912, when she was supposed to have her party, she rejected all of the plans and announced that she was going to be a painter. Well, I like that storyline better. (laughs) I do too. And I mean, can you blame her being exposed to all of the great art museums and art galleries of Europe? Like, Like, obviously, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So despite her parents' very strong opposition, they were not happy about this, she insisted continually on pursuing a career in the arts. And so finally, her mother was like, okay, if you're going to study it, you're going to do it properly. Mm. I'm excited to (laughs) see what properly means. of course... Yeah, Beatrice Wood is fluent in French. Of course, she spent a year in a convent in Paris and touring Europe, so she speaks fluent French. So they send her to Paris, where she's able to study art at the prestigious Academy Julian, a fashionable draw for aspiring artists located in the hometown of Monet.
1: So Mm. proper art
0: school in proper France with a chaperone as well. However, Beatrice Wood, she found the education tediously academic. Which mm. I mean, I don't know what they were teaching, but if you're like kind of a free spirit and like Which she free... obviously was, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like studying every aspect of art probably wouldn't be that fun fun. Yeah. And I think like her later art definitely shows how much of a free spirit she was. Like she didn't really follow the rules mm. even of art, which has very few rules anyway. I don't really blame her, but She ended up running away from her chaperone and from the school and moving into this like attic room that could only be accessed by a ladder, which sounds a little terrifying. True. (laughs) And then she just lined the walls with a bunch of her painted canvases and just spent all of her time there painting. Her mother found out that she had ran away and her her chaperone, by the way, she called her an old lady of 30. So, you know, just ancient, ancient, a 30 year old chaperone. Absolutely. (laughs) <laughs> and her mother came all the way to France to find her. And she said, I can still see her climbing this ladder with her high heeled shoes. She was very elegant with a black satin dress with a real hand embroidery at her throat and a wonderful hat with feathers. And she said, look at the cobwebs. And I never said a word. And she took me back to Paris. I'm obsessed um- <laughs> with this woman already. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So she went back to Paris, but then ended up turning her attention to theater. And her mother was like, okay, if you're going to do that, then you have to do it properly. Of course. Of course. So she had private acting and dance lessons with members of the comedy Frances, I think is how you say it. Cool. And appeared on the legendary stage with leading stars of the time, including Sarah Bernhardt, which I'm assuming is a very famous name, but I'm not very familiar with the histories of French acting. So still cool. Potential yeah. future uh-huh. artist to cover. And then World War I broke out. So no one wanted to be overseas during either of the world wars. So it forced Wood to return back to the United States. She was not happy about this, but of course she was back in New York. Her mother tried to do everything she could to discourage her from joining the theater in New York, but... Which is so funny because now that's like the destination for (laughs) people who are doing theater. And Beatrice was like, not a chance. I'm going to do what I want. So she ended up joining the French National Repertory Theater because she was flown in French again. And she played over 60 ingenue roles under the stage name in order to not, you know, discourage the family's reputation. Good for her. The stage name, Mademoiselle Patricia. And she did 62 roles in only two years. Wow. So insane. She was acting a ton. Uh And then she has a quote about this. She said, I wanted to go on the stage, not because I was stage struck, but to earn money so that I could get away from home because I was a good little girl and nothing is more revolting. (laughs) Oh, oh, I, I love her. I love I this know, so she's much. definitely a character. So while she was working as an actress, a friend told Beatrice about a French man who was in the hospital with a broken leg and was lonely and had no one to talk to. And it turned out to be the composer, Edgard Barassé? Baris? Okay. And then he introduced her to Marcel Ducamp, which if you studied any art history, you know about Ducamp. He's everywhere. And that's because he is considered the major founder of the Dada art movement in the avant-garde. Oh yeah, which we're gonna try and talk about. I will say upfront, Dada is one of the like art movements that I understand the least. <laughs> Cool. (laughs) It makes zero sense to me. Like I get abstract expressionism. I even get like cubism. Like I understand what they were trying to do Mm -hmm. with Dada. I don't really get it, but you know it's there, and it was really important to art history. So I'm gonna try my best, but like once again, forgive me if you're an art historian, because this one is just like the one movement that I'm like I don't know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but cool. I think that's kind of what they wanted. Like so, I was anyways. gonna say, from the very little that I know about the Dada movement, <laughs> I think I think yeah, that's spot on. <laughs> so it was an art movement formed during World War One, obviously, and it kind of began in Zurich. And it was as a negative reaction to the horrors and folly of war, which makes sense. You know, like a lot of art comes from- Through devastation and horrible things. Yes. There was also a lot happening that was just like really weird. You had Freud's theories who were like having people Mm. really mess around with the unconscious mind and all of that. Communism was becoming like a major thing with Marxism. And so it was like kind of turning society upside down. Yeah. And then they also said that like, the arts were just coming unglued. So there was just like poems with scrambled syntax and like Picasso's cubism that like made human anatomy look like nothing, mm. like <laughs> fragments, you know. And then there was just like all of these radical ideas and like political fringes and crazy stuff that was happening. Yeah. And Marcel Duchamp was in Paris and he ended up trying impressionism and then cubism and then ended up rejecting all of this because he said that painting was for the eye not for the mind and so it was supposed to look hmm. pleasing to your eye but really not really have anything to do with your brain and so he created like this conceptual art piece in 1913 where he fastened a bicycle wheel to a kitchen stool and then just watched it turn which uh, you know i don't know <laughs> i'm inspired yeah why not <laughs> yeah. and then there was also a writer at this time hugo ball who said the image of the human form is gradually disappearing from the painting of these times and all objects appear only in fragments the next step is for poetry to decide to do away with language hmm. and it ended up happening so hugo ball himself took to the stage of the cabaret voltaire in zurich and cited this poem. Oh, I'm so excited. That began Gajibari Bimba, Lani, Lali Lani Kadori and such, you know, continuing on in complete nonsense. And that was kind of the whole point of it was that it was just like this utter nonsense because everyone in the world was so complacent about this war that was happening and everyone thought the war was extremely senseless. And then like politics were just in full force everywhere and people considered it like a civilized carnage of european Mm. intelligence so just like complete chaos (laughs) chaos (laughs) and they just wanted to create stuff that didn't make any sense because it didn't need to and why should it because society didn't and i like i guess i kind of get that yeah but it it truly doesn't make any sense even the name, it came from Hugo Ball once again, because dada means yes, yes in Romanian, oh. rocking horse and hobby horse in French. And for Germans, it's a sign of foolish naivety, okay. joy in procreation, and preoccupation with the baby carriage, like dada, like mm-hmm. a child like saying, gaga, dada, yeah. yes. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and so they coined the term, put it to use on posters, and then it ended up becoming like the official term for everything. So yeah, it was just kind of like this weird zany movement that ended up catapulting across the world to like Berlin, Paris, New York, and even Tokyo, and just became like this weird offshoot of modern abstract and conceptual art. And it died out in less than a decade. And ended up not getting, like, a ton of recognition or museum retrospectives until the modern century. I, th- I mean, it's probably just because people were like, what? <laughs> no, I agree completely. Because even with, like, a lot of the famous Dada art pieces, like, none of them are really, like, my favorite. You know, like, there's yeah. none of them that I'm like, oh, I'm dying to see that. Because... They really don't make sense. Yeah. But that's kind of the point of them. So like I appreciate the concept, but at the end of the day, like it's not Like it it, it achieved what it was trying to do and that makes (laughs) it maybe not as easily digestible for everyone (laughs) who would want to go to an art museum and see something beautiful. Agreed. And I kind of like the idea of the poem actually of just like nonsense that sounds good. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Than like the art that doesn't make any sense, but just like does something Mm -hmm. or like... You know, I don't know. So that's like a brief Dada movement. But like I said, so Wood is in the hospital. She meets this composer and then she gets introduced to Marcel Ducamp himself. Like Mm. literally the father of Dadaism. And he and his friend, Henry pierre Roche, who's, he's 14 years older than her Roche is. They meet her in New York when they're going to visit their composer friend as well. So she gets introduced to all of them. And as she says about the meeting, we immediately fell for each other which doesn't mean a thing because I think anybody who met Marcel fell for him. He was an enchanting person. And Roche was a French diplomat writer and art collector. And she ended up like, having a love relationship I don't know what to call it like it wasn't a normal relationship (laughs) but anyway her lover of Roche (laughs) and then he like introduced her to modern art and like really encouraged her creative pursuits she said that he was her first lover and also the first man to break her heart because one thing about Dadaism and all of that is that it was very bohemian And they didn't think very highly or very much at all about traditional like society's moralities. Mm. And so she considered herself to be a monogamous, a monogamous woman. Why can't I say that? Monogamous woman in a polyamorous world. So Mm. it was just really hard for her because everyone was like, you know, like very free love, very like art and she bohemian was not society yes yeah and she grew up in a very proper household so she also talked about marcel saying that he shocked her because he said that sex and love are two different things yet she fell into a relationship with him because she felt that they should become as close physically if they were emotionally mm. and they remained lifelong friends so yes she was involved with both Roche. And Ducamp. Okay. <laughs> and there was actually a quote about this that said, more people know her for sleeping with Ducamp than for making her own work. And that needs to be rectified, which of course is an is ongoing the trend. meaning of our whole thing. Yes. yes. <laughs> And the whole meaning behind more than a muse, like everyone looked at her as like, oh, you know, like the lover of DuCamp. When it's like, well, she was also a significant artist here. And the three of them, Wood, DuCamp and Roche ended up working together to create this magazine called The Blind Man. And then also subsequently another one called Wrong Wrong. It's wrong without a W and then wrong with a W. Dadaism, right? <laughs> and those were two of the earliest manifestations of the Dada art movement in the United States because it did cool. start in Germany and Paris. So they were, of course, like in this kind of love triangle. Yes. A lot of people have also said it was a legendary menage a trois, which I don't know how much truth there is to that. But Roche did end up writing a book called Jewels et Jim in 1956. And it ended up inspiring a French new wave film that was written and directed, I think, by Francois Truffaut in 1962. And everyone assumed that it was about the three of them, oh. Duchamp, Roche, and Wood. Wood ended up commenting on this on herself in her autobiography in 1985 mm-hmm. and just said that Roche lived in Paris with his wife, Denise. So he was married yeah. and had by now written Jewels at Jim because the story concerns two young men who are close friends with a woman who loves them both. People have wondered how much was based on Roche, Marcel, and me. I cannot say what memories or episodes inspired Roche, but the characters bear only a passing resemblance to those in real life. So interesting. Yeah, she didn't really like confirm or deny. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, a lot of people do believe that that whole French New Wave film is about their experience together in their little relationship. So one important thing that happened with this friendship is also Beatrice was introduced to the New York Dada group. Mm -hmm. And the art collectors of Walter and Louise Arzenberg, who ended up becoming her lifelong friends. They held a bunch of gatherings at their apartment in Manhattan mm-hmm. and invited like artists, writers, and poets to gather and they would serve drinks and hors d'oeuvres and engage in intellectual intellectual conversation. Which I love the idea of. I feel like we've read about so many of them. I was going to say, like all these high society, fancy art societies, you know what? They sound like a fun thing to be a part of. (laughs) I know. I'm like, I want to go meet with people and eat (laughs) hors d'oeuvres and talk about intellectual things. That sounds great. (laughs) It really does. (laughs) So a lot of people were a part of this, obviously, and that included Francis Picabia, Minna Loy, Man Ray, which is another famous name. Charles Demuth, Joseph Stella, Charles Schiller, and the composer that was in the hospital, mm-hmm. Edgard Verres, once again. And then Beatrice Wood ended up teasing Ducamp at one point that anyone could create modern art. And she created this like a little abstraction art piece. Mm-hmm. And Ducamp was so impressed by the work that he arranged to have it published in a magazine and invited her to work in his studio with him. Hmm. And here she developed her style of spontaneous sketching and painting that continued throughout her life. Isn't the spontaneous sketching kind of like what Hilma of did? Kind of. Okay. Yeah. Hers is a little different. So then they like formed a society of independent artists together and then created like exhibiting work and everything. Mm-hmm. This is also around the time where she's dubbed the mama of Dada. Okay. <laughs> Which is like her little title that they've given her because she... Although she's rarely listed among the movement's pioneers, like if you look up the art movement of Dada, like mm-hmm. you probably won't find her name. But she was like so closely entwined with Ducamp and the whole movement and like she ended up submitting works at the first exhibition with Ducamp that ended up becoming like Dada's coming out in mm. the Americas mm-hmm. and like its first real recognition. But her and Ducamp were kind of a part of this same major exhibition that really brought Dada to the forefront. Mm-hmm. so what happened during this exhibition is one of the most famous pieces of Dada it's a urinal oh yeah <laughs> i remember this uh-huh. yes titled the fountain and it's a literally i think just a urinal i don't know if there's anything else <laughs> that was like significant about it okay it was signed by the pseudonym r mutt and it's literally it was just a urinal sitting on a pedestal and it's believed that DuCamp submitted it under the name r mutt in 1917 as a part of this and wood wrote this like statement about the whole thing Uh because they produced it in a publication with their magazine. And she said, as for plumbing, that is absurd. The only works of art America has given are her plumbing and her bridges. Nice. (laughs) And a lot of times that quote is actually believed to have been written by DuCamp himself, but it was actually Beatrice Wood. Wow. uh, Something that's also kind of interesting about this is that she submitted her piece Un du dans du savant, and she made it alongside Ducamp in his studio. And it was the image of a nude female figure rising from her bath. And then she attached an actual piece of soap to the canvas in what she called a tactual position. Okay. And yeah, it grew a lot of attention, a lot of critical reaction. Um, an artist actually said she was sort of the sensation of the show. Her work was attacked by the press. And the offending painting, you know, because it had a naked torso with a real piece of soap mm-hmm. attached. <laughs> Something else that's also interesting about this is that it may not have actually been Duchamp that created the fountain. It is attributed to him like all the time. There's actually a lot of speculation on whether or not he actually was the artist it's believed that it probably was a woman and when I was researching this episode I was like wait could it have been Beatrice Wood I don't think it actually was Wood but it's believed that it was the Baroness Elsa von Freytag lorenhoven because Duchamp wrote to his sister in 1917 that one of my woman friends using a masculine pseudonym Richard Mutt submitted a porcelain urinal to the Society of Independent show as a sculpture. Oh. Yeah. So it's just kind of like, hmm. Definitely. That's could have interesting. Been. Yeah. And he ended up getting credit for it, I think for his entire life pretty much. But just the fact that he wrote, that letter kind of saying that it wasn't him and it was under a pseudonym when DuCamp already had a reputation. He didn't need to use a pseudonym. Yeah. So it would have been really interesting for him to have used a pseudonym. Yeah. Like what would have been so, the point, kind of? Yeah, like there wouldn't have really been a point where if you have a baroness in England or like wherever she was, a baroness in Germany, then of course she's the one who would have to worry about her reputation for making art on her own. And I mean, for making a... So, uh, Art that is literally a a urinal, I feel, is also maybe a part of that. Yeah, exactly. So there's a lot more about that. I honestly think it could be like a whole episode on its own about like the Baroness and if Ducamp really created the fountain or not. Interesting. But she is attributed with a different work of art that's literally like pipes just Mm. standing up. Mm -hmm. And she titled it God. Nice. (laughs) And so her work was much more similar to the fountain than Ducamp's. So it kind of makes more sense that it would have been her, but it was attributed to Ducamp at the time and for most of history. So something to look into there if you're wondering about more misattribution, (laughs) which is everywhere. We're gonna take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. So because of who we are covering today, I figured it would be, you know, fitting to have a ceramicist. So the one that I found that I absolutely love is underscore sunshine underscore child underscore. It's an artist named Abby. And I really, really like these. She is, of course, a ceramic artist. She has mugs and they have like cute little abstract faces on them with big lips i love this i feel like beatrice wood would I, 100% approved. i think this is beatrice wood approved absolutely oh yes and she doesn't just have mugs it's a lot of what she has but are, the ones where like the goofy lips become the handle it's my They're favorite so funny. there are so many so many good ones and let's go to her shop she has a website these things are for sale Mugs, plots, p- plots <laughs> plants, and pots, vases. They're not uh, all are the available. Are for sale? Because those are freaking cute. Which ones? The bags. Ooh, I don't know. She oh. has like the funny faces on the bags. I love it. She must not have done a recent drop because everything is currently sold out. Sold out <laughs> but. Well, that means it's a good time to follow her so you yes, can see the next day. updated. I love that. That is these. so fun. Yeah, exactly. They're 100%. Beatrice Wood approved, and Sunshine Childs like, fits that even more. Looks like her next drop is July 31st, and this episode comes out on Monday. So if you're interested, Mm -hmm. it'll be coming up this next week. Again, that's underscore sunshine underscore child underscore. Her name's Abby. Check it out. Perfect. Okay. Well, I have one as well. Her name is Kate Mary, and it's Kate Mary Art all spelled the way you'd expect perfect (laughs) she's actually based in Glasgow which is where you know Ducamp was for a short time so there you go there's our tie-in yes I love it (laughs) but she is a artist and interior designer and I'm obsessed with I think their drawings yeah these look amazing they're like architectural drawings but with like plants and colors and they're just gorgeous yeah they really are they're like the plants are abstract but then there's like so much detail in the architecture and it's like this perfect balance of everything and I just think they're beautiful I'm just like scrolling so, yeah. through, just like and the details of everything is I know gorgeous so huh? mesmerizing. yeah she also does have a shop Ooh. she does commissions and then you can buy prints original work and cards as well on her shop I feel like this would be like a perfect print to have somewhere in your house yeah. like just you know just like a beautiful interior with like colors and everything so yeah definitely check her out it's just gorgeous it really yeah i love it all right now back to the show and then also uh academic at the time said that while Ducamp no doubt served as a mentor to Wood, her rebellious creativity didn't start or end with him. Beatrice was a romantic, but she never allowed a man to control her life ever. She paid her own bills from the beginning to the end. Nice. And that's very true. She did. She had a lot of faith and like determination with being completely independent in 1918 Beatrice ran off to Montreal to appear in the theater she said that her mother had been interfering with every role offered so she left and her mother ended up hiring a private detective who found she was sharing an apartment in Montreal with Paul the theater manager and was absolutely horrified (laughs) And Paul convinced Beatrice that the only way she could be free from her mother was to marry him and so she did, but they weren't in love they were just living together and she actually ended up having to sell a lot of her art books and borrow money from friends to support his gambling habit which sounds very generous. Yes. I would not be so willing <laughs> even for a man that I loved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not my art books. <laughs> the unconsummated marriage was legally dissolved years later by her parents and at this point she had lost interest in the theater. Uh, It's really funny. She actually has a quote where she says, you know, acting is very fascinating, but being an actress is not because you become so concentrated on yourself and your smile and the way you move your head and the way you look. And really it's a pain in the ass (laughs) with every quote more and more iconic. Just amazing. (laughs) She really is just such an iconic woman. So she returns to New York city from Canada, ends up finding that most of her Dada friends have left. Rosh has gone back to France, Ducamp is abroad, and the Ars Bergs are in Los Angeles. She ended up falling in love with an actor and director named Reginald Pohl. And she said that even though she fell for others over the next several decades, she claimed that she never stopped loving him. Hmm. So sadly, though, we don't know that much about their relationship at all other than he introduced her to Dr. Annie Basant of the Sophical Society mm-hmm. and an Indian sage named Jiddu Krishnamurti, Paul fell in love with a young girl and broke Beatrice's heart, so she moved to Los Angeles to be near the Arzenbergs and Krishnamurti, who held regular events there. And this is kind of where theosophical, it ends up playing a large part in her life, especially the Theosophical Society and mysticism and everything. I tried to find more about it. It's kind of, from what I could find, like a very general theory and idea of like mysticism mm, at the time. Mm-hmm. So it's incorporating like Neoplatonism, Nauticism, Western esotericism, Freemasonry, <laughs> Hinduism and Buddhism all together. Oh wow! It was also founded by Helena Blavatsky, which we talked about in the Helma of Clint episode, mm-hmm. and kind of that whole idea of like occult science and mysticism and how it incorporates into like their physical world of like thinking. Yeah, Blavatsky was like very determined to state that it was not a world religion, but more of like a science or like a divine wisdom. Okay, and that that's where the name came from was it was like wisdom of the gods or genealogy of the gods or like not the gods in the sense of like the way we're attached to it now but like divine wisdom that's thousands of years old okay kind of that was kind of the whole idea before of it and it was all the rage in that area at the time mysticism you know was growing and especially in california with more of the bohemian life and so when she settled in california it became a major part of her life like specifically the guy krishnamurti mm-hmm. who was the indian sage so i think her like mysticism beliefs definitely leaned more like hinduism okay than most others it had a lot of like indian references and like influences in it whereas humoff clintz was more like 19th century mysticism yeah in a lot of ways but very interesting and it became a major part of who she was. She ended up settling around Ojai, California, where Krishnamurti was. And during this time, Krishnamurti was like touring the world and like often going to the Netherlands and other areas in Europe to speak to members of the Theosophical Society. And members from California and the United States would also like follow him there and like listen to him too. Okay. So, sounds like an expensive trip. Yeah. <laughs> to go and listen to someone who lives in your neighborhood, but <laughs> I mean, they were dedicated. <laughs> so, um, she goes on one of these trips to Holland to listen to Krishnamurti, and while she's there, she ends up purchasing a set of baroque dessert plates that had like this luster glaze on them. Okay. And she really really wanted to have a matching teapot for these plates and she couldn't find one. Like the entire trip, she just kept looking for like a matching teapot for these plates. huh. And so by the time she got home, she decided that she was just gonna make one. I love that. <laughs> so she enrolled in a ceramic course in 1933 at Hollywood High School, which I just love. Oh my god! She's like, I'm gonna go to high school and learn how to make a teapot. Like I will figure <laughs> out my own way to learn this. She soon learned that making a teapot was not very easy because she was not a born craftsman. That's what she says in her own words. However, she was determined and attempted the study of glaze chemistry while learning to throw pots through trial and error. (laughs) Ceramics ended up being the major part of her career, which is actually so funny considering how many like passions and Aspirations she had before, and then just this determination to make a teapot ends up throwing her into the rest of her life. I mean, I love that attitude. <laughs> I feel just like the energy of her just being like frustrated. It's like, fine, I'll do it myself because I really just want this to be complete. You know, like yeah, it's it's very pure in exactly. a way. Exactly, it's so funny, and I definitely relate to like the not a born craftsman part because like pottery takes a completely different set of skills than like oh, painting. I could never, yeah, yeah. I took a pottery class in junior high and I was awful at it So, because yeah, it really does involve so much more like science and everything than a lot of other arts, which is crazy, but she didn't give up even though she never did make the matching teapot. So, I mean, I think she got a little distracted with her goal there. That's fair though. I guess she went on to find a better, you know, life purpose. I mean, she's known as a ceramicist, so kind of shows you where her career went. Yes, absolutely. Um, In the late 1930s, she ended up studying with Glenn Lutkins, who was a leading artist and teacher of the time. He didn't really inspire, create individuality in his students. It was very much so like, here's how you do this. And then like you do it, you know, like Mm -hmm. not a lot of room for like individual growth. But he did prepare her very well for one of her most important mentors in her mind. It's a couple called Gertrude and Otto Notzler. They had a lot of like refined sensibility and technical knowledge. So they took her on as a student and specifically taught her like a lot of like throwing on the wheel and then like glaze chemistry to teach her like how to figure out more of the technical mm. side behind ceramics. And she said that they showed me an approach that has been invaluable. However, (laughs) this is really sad, actually. Beatrice, like, really treasured the experience she had with them. But when her career began taking off, they, like, got really jealous of it. They felt that she was using their glazes and forms and, like, kind of worried about her stealing from them in some way. And so they demanded that she leave. And they ended up never repairing their relationship, which Wood said, saddened her for the rest of her life oh. yeah she also noted she said they were my teachers of course my work is similar to theirs but her work was actually extremely different from the not but I think it was just like that close proximity and then probably some jealousy with her career taking off when maybe theirs wasn't in the same way mm-hmm. that they ended up being a little bit threatened yeah. by her career Their ceramics were very like controlled, like mastery of technique. Like obviously they taught her like the chemistry and like the throwing on the wheel. So it was like very precise. And hers were very like loose and unconventional, (laughs) like lots of like happenstance, like this just kind of unexpected results. Like she really embraced like things going wrong and like dealing with it anyway. Yeah. Okay. And she ended up developing a signature style where she did like this all over glaze luster that drew metallic salts to the surface and then starved by starving the kiln of oxygen. So she like did this all over glaze and then didn't put any oxygen in the kiln and it like brought salt to the surface of the glaze oh cool yeah and it was like her own distinct style style. yeah she ended up renting a small artesian shop on sunset boulevard where she demonstrated her craft sold her work and ended up saying, I never meant to become a potter. It happened very accidentally. <laughs> I could sell pottery because when I ran away from home, I was without any money. And so I became a potter. <laughs> I mean, yes. <laughs> oh, which is just so fun. I mean, art was obviously such a huge part of her life. We already talked about kind of her. Oh, yeah. Um, just from the be- always Her painting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, she did end up drawing a lot when she was with Marcel Duchamp. So some of her drawings are around. At that time, that's also where she got her own little nickname. She started signing all of her work as Beto. Okay. Like a Beatrice, but then like Beto. Yeah. And that's how she ended up signing her pottery as well. It was that same little nickname that she had used back then. And even though her drawings weren't like ever famous, she did end up illustrating her own autobiography that she wrote later. Mm -hmm. And her drawings are exhibited as a part of a permanent collection of the Santa Barbara Museum of Art. So that was kind of the close of like that art, but her sculpture went on to become more and more important and acclaimed. She did a lot of figures. So a lot of like vessel forms and sculpture, but no matter how talented she got, her work continued to have like this naive illustrative style. And it was just like a very different kind of work. She called it sophisticated primitives and it was like figurative, but like intentionally naive. You can't really tell it's a person, but you know it's a person. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a very like abstract in a way and very embracing like all of like folk art, Dadaism, and then also like her spiritualism, mysticism beliefs. Like definitely all was incorporated into that. She said, now in pottery, I make figures. A lot of people think they're perfectly horrible. Maybe they are, I have no idea, but I purposely keep these figures unschooled. Now I've been told that my pottery is elegant tradition and all that, but these figures are something entirely different. And I think that's the impact of Marcel in a certain direction that I don't want to keep them schooled. So they are very like primitive, very different. Of course I'll have some on the Instagram or you can Google them. Once her work was established enough, she ended up building her own home in Ojai, California in 1947. Her work had been included in exhibitions in Los Angeles County Museum of Art and the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And she was actually receiving orders from major department stores, including Neiman Marcus, Gumps, and Marshall Fields. Oh wow! So she was like very successful, like selling it yeah. and everything. Of course, she settled in Ojai to remain close to the Indian philosopher Krishnamurti, and she actually her home was across the street from him. Oh, nice! <laughs> I mean, I definitely wasn't an accident. And she was a very like close friend with all of the artists and actors, and all other people that were in search of these alternative lifestyles that were coming to meet with him. Uh Two of her very close friends were Vavitka and Otto Heino, who actually helped her continue to develop her throwing skills and shared techniques for working with luster Glazes that she continued. So lots of incorporating, like, you know, just tons of acquaintances and friends ended up really helping her establish her work. Also, while she was living in Ohio, she ended up teaching ceramics for the Happy Valley School, which is now called Besant Hill School, which I think I'm pretty sure it was owned by the Theosophical Society. Oh, okay. That makes Um, sense. It was like their school. Mm -hmm. So she operated her studio and showroom there and then kind of also had that become a part of like her artistic philosophies. Her friend, who was a part of the foundation, actually ended up asking her to build her home and studio on the grounds of the Happy Valley Foundation. So she sold her previous home that was across the street from her you know, the Indian guide to Vivika and Otto Haino to her close friends and then moved to a new home that was actually partially financed by one of her, her DuCamp drawings that she had saved. She sold it. I mean, <laughs> good for her. I love that though. It's like you hold on to an old friend's art and then you're like, oh, this is actually worth enough that I can finance my home. Like this will be, <laughs> yeah, it served its purpose. <laughs> so she lived on a 450 acre parcel of land in the beautiful upper Ojai Valley and then um it was kind of the understanding that because she was building her home there and she got to live on like this beautiful land that was owned by the foundation uh-huh. that when she died the home would go to them okay and she was completely fine with that like she didn't have any children or anything you know she obviously wasn't close to her parents <laughs> so <laughs> i just like as like the more you're going through her life i just imagine a very just horrified typical like very upper-class socialite mother just like clutching yep. her pearls at her daughter's <laughs> life path and it, it does it's bringing me joy uh, yeah i definitely think that's exactly what it yes. was <laughs> <Just> <laughs> her daughter moves out to california and basically becomes a hippie yeah like <laughs> the tr- like the biggest horror honestly what could have been worse yes makes weird oh, art man. that she doesn't understand and <laughs> yeah it, just, just the best mm-hmm. of course while she's living there she continued to just grow this beautiful library and collection of folk art that she just loved and then of course now the foundation has actually made the studio available to visitors who are able to go and just experience what it would have been like for her to continue to make art there I love it in 1961 she attended an exhibition of her work in Japan so her work made it wow. all the way to Japan yeah. and of course like her work was very different from a lot of the proper japanese ceramics and so one of the japanese ceramicists said to her miss wood your work is very beautiful but you use a great deal of color (laughs) and she said yes sir i'm not japanese i live in a pink and blue house in bright sunlight and he laughed and ended up buying a piece (laughs) (laughs) that is a charming story I know. She's like, I'm not Japanese. I live in a pink and blue house. <laughs> like, like, of course, of course colorable. it's colorful, Yes. And then she also did a lot of lectures to different potters and stuff who would come to her studio. And mm. she was famous for saying, do be true to yourself, whether it's bad, it doesn't matter. The important mm. thing you have to copy while you're studying and culture is each of us like one pearl added to another to make a chain. We each contribute to the other and that's all right. But once you're on your own, do that which comes from within. And I feel this very strongly. I like that. That's awesome. She also got to visit India a ton, which definitely I think ended up influencing her even more because like like I said, her... Mysticism, My spiritualism definitely leaned more into the Hinduism of it all. Yeah. So she got an invitation from the American State Department to visit India on a 14-city tour. I mean, the American State Department, that's crazy. I know. And 14-city tour of India, like, sign me up. Yeah. It was in 1961- And so she got to go and just be exposed to the country and the art and like surface textures, color, ornamentation, erotic imagery. Like India has a rich culture of like color and art and everything. And then only four years later, she ended up returning to India again. And there she met a State Department employee named Ram Singh, who ended up moving to Ohio to work as her manager for another 25 years. Wow. (laughs) So definitely like an influential trip again. And then she traveled again to India in 1972 for the third time and acquired like a huge collection of folk art and a bunch of saris. Like she just bought a bunch of clothes and a bunch of art. She never ended up returning to India again, but I mean, she went three times. So the paintings and drawings that she made during later in her life always portrayed her as a young girl. And at 103, she wrote to a friend, I hang on to the statement of scientists that there's no time. Therefore, join me in telling everyone you are 32. This allows me to go after young men and plan on grabbing husbands from my girlfriends, choosing to live in the timeless. I am now at the easiest and happiest time of my life. I love that. At 103. That is so cool. (laughs) sorry, rewinding a little bit. When she was 90, she actually started writing. Her friend, Anais Nin, provided the model and encouragement for her to write her biography and then even encouraged her agent to publish it. And um, So she has a biography? Yes, an autobiography oh, that she so wrote cool. and illustrated herself. And the Anais Nin, I think, was the daughter-in-law of Reginald Pohl. Okay. Who, like, You know, her Her, one true love. Yeah, I was just going (laughs) to say. And then Anais Nin had written of Beatrice's work. I just thought this was a beautiful description, so I wanted to include it. She said, Beatrice Wood combines her colors like a painter, makes them vibrate like a musician. They have the strength, even while iridescent and transparent. They have a rhythm and luster, both of jewels and human eyes water poured from one of her jars will taste like wine. Wow. That is beautiful. Isn't that gorgeous? Mm -hmm. So just lovely. She ended up writing a bunch of books. She wrote the angel who wore black tights that got published. I don't know what it's about, but it sounds intriguing. And then ended up publishing her autobiography I Shock Myself, which a lot of these quotes I said are from. I Shock Myself. That is an excellent autobiography title. (laughs) I know. And then she also published another book called Pinching Spaniards and 33rd Wife of a Mahara, A Love Affair in India. Also don't know what it's about, but love it. I mean, like make assumptions, I guess. (laughs) I think both of the books other than her autobiography were written under the pseudonym Countess Lola Skravinsky, which I love every (laughs) single fact that you are telling me about her, like she keeps getting better and better. (laughs) I know. After she did her autobiography, it became very well known. It was published in 1985. And when people were asking her what the secret to her long life was, this is gonna be another quote that you're just gonna love. I'm so ready. (laughs) She said, I owe it all to art books, chocolates, and young men. Excellent. (laughs) As she should. (laughs) They did also note that she was a lifelong vegetarian who never drank alcohol and didn't smoke. So, I mean, like, good tips <laughs> then everybody, <laughs> But she did say like, I owe it all to art books, chocolate and young men. And they said, if you would make the trip out to her Ohio, California studio, you'd find the artist in the last years of her life, swathed in a sari while working at the Potter's wheel and flanked by all manner of sacred objects, healing crystals, Hindu icons, and her signature opalescent vessels. There were young male assistants on the clock and stacks of Hershey's bars in the refrigerator. So the good news is, is yeah, have as much chocolate as you want. It's fine. (laughs) Stacks of Hershey's bars in the refrigerator. I love it. You are correct. (laughs) That amazing. Yes. (laughs) Throughout her life, Beatrice Wood embraced a life that combined the wisdom of the East, positive thinking, a strong work ethic, a Dadaist sense of humor, and a romantic view of life. Her personal philosophy served her well as she continued working in her studio until the age of 104. That's incredible. <laughs> yes, like literally till 104. So obviously the thing I said at the very beginning, she ended up inspiring Titanic's rose. Yeah. Which is like probably, I don't know, like one of the least interesting things about her. Which is like, like insane. <laughs> but it definitely grabs the tension, right? Like we've all seen the Titanic, yeah. I think probably it's, most it's the very popular movie even i've seen it and yes. i haven't seen a lot of movies so <laughs> there's a good so gauge. what happened with it is that she didn't inspire the young rose she inspired the older version of rose who tells the story yeah that makes sense yeah so what happened is that the character of rose in the film in 1997 titanic she's 101 yeah like the old woman is and bill paxton who was like Writing the story, like trying to figure out what to do for the script of Rose. His wife ended up loaning him a copy of Beatrice Wood's autobiography. Oh. I shocked myself. And when he was reading it, he realized that, like, the character was literally what he wanted for the old Rose in the film. No way. Okay. Like, 100%. He was like, just the humor and the cleverness. Like, that's what I wanted for this old woman in this film. So then he went and met Beatrice Wood and he said she was charming, creative, and devastatingly funny. And then, of course, he referenced the like, it's only a refraction of Beatrice that combined with many of fictional course. elements, of course. Yeah. But they actually didn't invite her to attend the premiere. They didn't? Because, like, no, they did Oh, okay. She was such a major influence on the character. She was actually too ill to do so. Like, she couldn't go. She was 104. I mean, so I mean- yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But James Cameron and Gloria Stewart, who played the Beatrice-like character in the film, they went and dined with her and presented her with a video of the movie. Aww. And I love this. She didn't watch it because she believed it would be sad and it was too late in her life to be sad. I want to know? <laughs> the Titanic is very sad. It's so sad. Like, you and go I into that movie <laughs> knowing her. how it ends and you're sobbing. Like, good yes. for her honestly I agree. <laughs> like that was one of my favorite moments it's like they literally base a character in the movie by her like the actress and like <laughs> the director of the film come and eat dinner with her they give her her own personal copy of the movie I'm sure before it even came oh, out I'm sure this like and she's like oh I'm too old to be sad. like no I'm good and actually, I'm kind of glad she didn't because she did end up passing away just a few days later. Oh, my so. gosh. that's Yeah, she does not need to be sad about the Titanic <laughs> so close to her death. No. She passed away in 1998 at the age of 105 with oh my the goodness. last 25 years of her life being her most productive years. You know, which is just it crazy. is never too late then. I'm <laughs> obsessed with that. Yeah, because that was, like, her ceramics career, writing books and, like, all of the ceramic workshops and everything she did with people at her home. That was all during the last 25 years of her life, which is just insane. I mean, and, like, she she was the inspiration for, like, a huge figure in just American (laughs) television. Not television, American, like, movies. Like, the Titanic is, like, such an iconic movie. Right? It was, like, the top grossing film of all time until Avatar came out. Like, literally. Uh. And that was a long gap of time between those two. So just crazy but i love this quote um most i will say most of the stuff i got on here were from her website so i think the link was like becoming oh but i'm looking at this biography right now (laughs) yeah what is it i shock myself yeah i shock myself i beatrice wood oh that is But i will end with this like little quote oh please do it says yet decades spent living what might be called a true bohemian's artist lifestyle had not distanced wood from her belief in true love She was married twice, but never consummated the marriage to either of her husbands. (laughs) She fell deeply in love seven times, but did not marry any of those men. And throughout her life, Beatrice Wood continued to think of herself as a romantic. She later said that the mountain that she lived alongside after her move to Happy Valley was the only partner she could count on to be there when I go to bed at night and still be there when I wake up the next morning. I am. I love her. I love her. (laughs) She's great. And I mean, like she's not talked about as much as like Marcel Ducamp and a lot of others are, but she did make like a very big impact in the world of art in 1994. The Smithsonian named her an esteemed American artist. Um, She left her home and studio to the Happy Valley Foundation, and they transformed it into the Beatrice Wood Center for the Arts, Uh which still exists there today. Her work is actually held in the permanent collections of the Smithsonian, the Met, the National Museum of Women in the Arts, which is under construction right now, but that's in Washington, D.C., the Brooklyn Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, and many others. There's a documentary about her that came out on her 100th birthday Uh called The Mama of Dada that they shot on 16 millimeter film in Los Angeles. And she awarded the fifth annual Beatrice Wood Film Award to Cameron for his work on her. Amazing. Also, this is just like a weird random footnote, but so cool. She kept daily journals for 85 years. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And in 2011, Francis Nauman and his wife, Mary Keller, edited a selection of her journals involving her life in the world of art. And I do believe they are available to read. 85. That's making years me. Of I'm journals. like, dang, I am slacking. <laughs> I need to be better. Oh yeah. So just like crazy, wonderful woman with this insane life, like bohemian before it was cool. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and honestly, like, what a life. Like, I feel like to be listen. Like, obviously, she comes from a very privileged background, but you want to know what she lived it up and she took oh, every yeah. advantage of it. And you know, good for her. I. And she, I like, her. funded most of it herself. Like, none this of that was true. her parents' money. Like, she ran away from home as many times as she possibly could. That is so <laughs> She funny. didn't want anything to do with them. Yeah. So, yeah. Just, like, so crazy. Like, wonderful woman that, like. Wonderful. Yeah. I'm obsessed. Well, thank you for giving me one, a new biography or autobiography to read. Yeah, I know. I really want to read it too. I wish I could have read it over the episode, but like I would go broke if I tried to read a book about every single yeah. person before True. we do them. <laughs> but this is one of my new favorite people we've learned about. It's so funny. I know. I was so fascinated by her. I just think she's so amazing. Oh, amazing. That's it. That's Beatrice Wood. (laughs) Well, thank you for bringing this woman into my life. Mm -hmm. So happy that I now know where the inspiration behind, you know, the Titanic, or not all of it, obviously. (laughs) I mean, obviously the Titanic (laughs) is... Not inspired but by the her. the old lady in the Yes. Amazing. Thanks, everyone, for joining and listening. I hope you enjoyed mm-hmm. learning about this woman. And we'll be back next week. Follow us on Instagram. Leave yes. us a review. If you've been listening for a while, share with your favorite friend who you think might enjoy learning about a forgotten woman from history. And yeah, just text in yeah. the episode link. Be like, hey, I think you'd enjoy this. You know, that is a- sharing is caring. Perfect. And we'll be back cool. next week with another forgotten woman artist.